I'm sure that many of you have heard stories of people who have had a crisis faith, people who have called out to God for help in, in the midst of a crisis. You, know, you see this crisis faith very often with soldiers who are on the front lines of the battle. You know, there's bullets flying by them, explosions going around them. And for some, you know, they're watching a fellow soldier right in front of them getting shot and killed. And right away that fear comes, you know, and they're thinking, I'm next, I'm going to die, this is the end. And in that moment now they, they, they cry out to God for help. But you know what, it's not only soldiers that find themselves in these areas of crisis that kind of leads them to this place to cry out for God. You, know, you see that very common with those who are sick and dying or, or those who have loved ones who are sick and dying and you know, that they're calling out to God for help in that crisis situation. You see that with people who are in financial crisis, who, who need a job, who, who need money, and they, they, they come to that place of crisis and they call out to God for help. And the prayer that we often see in that crisis faith situation is like, God, get me out of this situation. And it's usually followed up with, and then I'll follow you for the rest of my life. You know, here, we'll make this kind of bargain. I'll give you my life. You get me out of this situation. God, you heal my loved one or you heal me and I'll follow you the rest of my life. Or you provide this job. You provide this money. You, you get me out of this financial crisis and I'll follow you for the rest of my life. And when God answers those types of prayers, He brings you safely through that battle. He heals you or your loved one. He provides for the needs that you have. The real test of that person's faith is not in how sincere they were when they cried out to God in the midst of that crisis. The real test of faith is how are they going to respond when the crisis is now over? When God's now delivered, when God's now provided, when God's now healed, and the crisis situation is no longer there, what is their faith going to be like then? Will they forget God and their commitment to follow Him, or will they go deeper in their faith in God? You know, oftentimes this crisis faith for people in these crisis situations really never develops beyond that initial crying out to God. It's just something that they have in that moment of crisis, and then when the crisis is over, so is their faith. And it's an unfortunate thing, but you know what? There are times when crisis, it leads us to God. It leads us to an encounter with God, and that ultimately leads us to a deeper faith in God. It leads us to the most important faith of all, conversion faith. Faith that saves us from our sins. And that is what we're going to see here this morning at the end of John chapter 4. Jesus is going to encounter a man who is going through a crisis. And he's going to start this encounter with Jesus with crisis faith. It's the crisis that leads him to Jesus. But during this man's encounter with Jesus, we're going to see that he's going to go through five stages of faith. He's going to start with this crisis faith, this thing that draws him to Jesus, but you know he isn't going to stay in that crisis mode. It's going to progress. It's going to develop. It's going to mature and deepen. He goes from crisis faith to confident faith, and from confident faith to confirmed faith, and from confirmed faith to conversion faith, and then finally from conversion faith to contagious faith. And as we look at this progression of faith in this man's life, I think there's plenty of lessons for you and I to learn about our own faith in the Lord, about the journey that we take to mature and, and deepen in that faith, and even hopefully a challenge if, if you're going through or in the midst of a crisis now of how we should respond, what we should do in the midst of those situations, the kind of faith that we should have in the Lord. Now, before we look at the encounter that Jesus has with this man in, in a crisis situation, I want to remind you of the two different um, relationships and, and encounters that Jesus has just had here in the Gospel of John because they kind of set the stage for why Jesus is going to say what he says to this man and why Jesus is going to do what he does to this man because it's kind of you know uh, dealing not only with this man but also these two different groups that Jesus has had encounters with so far. So in John chapter 2 and 3 and 4, we see that Jesus has really had encounters with two main groups. You have the Jews 
and you have the Samaritans. And with both of these groups, Jesus has had a group encounter, but also an individual encounter. He had a group encounter with the Jews there in Jerusalem, and then he turns around and has an individual encounter with a Jew named Nicodemus. He has an individual encounter with a Samaritan, at a woman at the well, and then he has a group encounter with all the Samaritans that come to him there at the well. And the main thing I want you to note is that you know, the encounter that Jesus has with the Jews and he has with the Samaritans are very different encounters. And they're different in what Jesus did, but more importantly, they're different in how people respond to Jesus. With the Jews, the encounter was very different. It starts with Jesus casting them out of the temple because they are abusing and misusing it. And they respond by saying, what sign do you show us that you have the authority to do these things? Jesus, show us a sign to prove that you have the right to cast us out of this temple. And Jesus tells them, hey, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Well, right after that happened, we're told, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Then in John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes on the scene. He says, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher from God. Notice what he says. For no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. So notice that the Jews are super focused on signs. They're super focused on the miraculous things that Jesus did. And that's why they're coming to him. Not because of who Jesus is. Not because he's the Messiah. Not because he's the Savior. They haven't bought into that reality yet. They only come to him for what he can do, not for who he is. But with the Samaritans, it's very different. The Samaritans don't see any signs, don't see any miracles. All they have from Jesus are his words. He speaks to that Samaritan woman at the well, and he speaks with the Samaritans who come to him, and he spends two days with them. He doesn't show them any signs. And notice their response. Without seeing any signs and just hearing the words of Jesus, and this is where we ended last week in John chapter 4, verse 42, and it says this, Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. The Samaritans believed in who Jesus is, not because of a sign, not because of some miraculous thing that Jesus did. They believed solely on his own words, his own testimony about himself. They put their belief completely in the words of Jesus. And notice what they believe. They believe the truth of who he is, that he is the Messiah and that he is the Savior of the world. And so this is the difference. We have the Jews that they're just focused on signs and wonders and miracles, but they have yet to believe in who Jesus is. And then you have the Samaritans who haven't had any of those signs and miracles. They just have Jesus' word, but yet it's led them to a belief in who he is. And that kind of sets the stage now for this encounter that Jesus is going to have for the, uh, with this man with a crisis. And right before we get to this encounter, John's going to highlight the difference that we see here between the Jews and the Samaritans' response to Jesus. Notice what he tells us in verses 43 through 46. Now after the two days, he departed from there and went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. So Jesus came to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. Now remember that the past two days, Jesus is in Samaria, and he's speaking to the Samaritans, and they're listening to him, and it leads them to a belief that he's the Messiah, that he's the Savior of the world. And now we see that Jesus leaves Samaria, and he travels north to the region of Galilee. Now, it's something that's very important to note is the region of Galilee is where Jesus grew up. Galilee isn't a city, it's a region. As you see on the map here, uh, that northern region that's in yellow, uh, that's the region of Galilee. And within that region, you have the city of Nazareth. 
uh, where Jesus grew up. And so he grew up, people knew him. This was where he you know, spent most of his upbringing in this region of Galilee. And notice what Jesus says in verse 44, a prophet has no honor in his own country. Because these people who were in Galilee, who grew up with Jesus, they just saw Jesus as Joseph, the carpenter's son, or perhaps other people saw him in an even more negative light, the son of Mary, and we don't even know who his dad is. Uh, you know, that, that's kind of how they, they maybe viewed him, but they just didn't conclude, hey, wait a second, this guy that we've seen our whole life, you know, the carpenter's son, you know, he's the Messiah? No, they, they never connected that. They never gave him the honor that was due to him, the honor of who he really is, like the uh, Samaritan saw that he's the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Well, verse 45 tells us, So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. So we're told that the Galileans received Jesus. Notice it didn't say that they believed in who he is. It's just that they received him. They didn't reject him. But notice why they received him. Why is it that the Galileans want Jesus around or happy for him to be there? Well, we're told the reason. It's because they had seen all the things Jesus did in Jerusalem at the feast. Remember back in Jerusalem at the feast, the first thing he does is cast everybody out of the temple because they're misusing it. But then right after that, he heals a bunch of people. He does all these miraculous things to bless people. And they were there and they saw it. And they thought, whoa, yeah, you're welcome here, Jesus. You know what? You can come back to the region of Galilee anytime if you're going to bring your miracles, if you're going to bring your signs, if you're going to heal us and help us, then sure, we'll receive you. So they only want him for the signs, not for who he is. Because they haven't believed in who he is yet. They just think, wow, yeah, here's the miracle man. Yeah, come on over. You, know, you can be with us. Henry Morris wrote this. The enthusiasm of the Galileans was not soundly based. It was dependent on the wonders arising from their sight of the signs. Not on a realization that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. The very acceptance of him was thus... In its way, a rejection. They gave him honor of a sort, but it was not the honor that was due to him. So the fact that the Jews only received Jesus because of the signs that he did and didn't believe in who he was, it sets the stage now for this encounter that Jesus has with this man with the crisis, and really more importantly, the response that Jesus gives. Because when you see the response, you're like, well, why would he say that? Well, he says that based on what we're seeing here with the Jews only concerned with signs and not who Jesus really is. And so we're going to see now this encounter. This man's going to come with this crisis faith, and we're going to see these five stages of faith that he goes through, and let's see why he comes, what crisis that he finds himself in in verses 46 and 47. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. The man having a crisis situation, we're told, is a noble man. More literally translated, a man of a royal official position. Most commentators believe that he was in Herod. So you have King Herod, he's dead. His son, Herod Antipas, is now ruling that this nobleman was most likely an official in Herod's court. So he would have been a man of power, prestige, money. And here's this man who has you know, this issue, but notice that he lives in Capernaum. And as you can see from the map, that's about uh, 20 miles from Cana, where Jesus is at. And that journey, if you're walking, would take about five hours to make it from Capernaum to Cana. Now, the crisis that this nobleman had is that his son is sick. But more than he's just sick, he's so sick that he's about to die. And I want you to picture this because, you know, as a parent, it's so difficult to watch your child sick. You'll do anything you can to try to get them better. And especially if you, you know, if they just have a common cold, you're not really so worried. But now you see this sickness that's leading to their death. And here's a man with means. You know, here's a man who has, you know, political influence. Here's a man who has power. Here's a man who has prestige. Here's a man who has wealth. And I'm sure he went to the best doctors. I'm sure he got the best medicine. I'm sure he did all he could in his power to help his son get better and nothing's working 
His son is now about to die, and he's now in this desperate state of what can I do? And now he's going to turn to Jesus. He hears that Jesus has just traveled from Samaria to Cana, which is only 20 miles from where he lives. Now, it's very possible that this gentleman was in Jerusalem, as we're told, that group of people that received Jesus. They were in Jerusalem. They saw the signs which Jesus did. He could have personally, with his own eyes, witnessed Jesus heal people. And so he's aware that Jesus has this capability. Or perhaps he just heard the stories of what Jesus was able to do. Either way, he's now in this crisis situation. Nothing is working to save his son. And he hears about Jesus coming. And he thinks, here's my last chance. Here's my hope. I can hopefully get Jesus to come and heal my son. And so he makes the 20-mile journey from Capernaum to Cana with hopes that he can get Jesus to come and heal his son. And when he gets to Cana, we're told he implored Jesus to come down and heal his son. The Greek word here translated implored means to beg. And it's actually in the imperfect tense, meaning a continuous action. And so it could be literally translated that he kept on begging Jesus over and over, please come and heal my son. Now, this would have been something very uncharacteristic for a man of his royal position. But he's past caring about that stuff. His son's about to die. He's going to lay aside all those things that might not fit his royal position or might be embarrassing him, begging someone for something. He doesn't care anymore because he's desperate for his son to get healed. And so he asked Jesus to come down. Speaking of, I want you to come from Canaan, and I want you to go all the way to Capernaum to my home, and heal my son. Now, it's interesting, this nobleman, he he recognized that Jesus has power, but he doesn't really understand how much power Jesus has. Because he believes the only way that Jesus can heal his son is if Jesus is physically present in his home, there touching his son. And that might have been his experience. That might have been what he saw. Jesus putting his hand on someone and healing them. And he's thinking, well, Jesus, you got to come to my house. you got to come to where my son is. You can't do anything here. You don't have enough power to do that. So come with me. And then you can heal my son. Begging Jesus to go with him. Well, let's see how Jesus responds to this man in verse 48. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. (laughs) Now, at first glance, it seems like pretty harsh. Uh, Here's a guy who's desperate. His son's about to die. He's begging you to come to his house to heal his son. And your response is, hey, you know what? You guys, if you don't see signs and wonders, you'll by no means believe. But notice here something very important is that Jesus is not directing this answer to this nobleman alone. He says, you people. He doesn't just say, you nobleman, you people in general. All the people that are here that are listening to me, Jesus has a message for them. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. So what Jesus here is doing is not only addressing a problem, but he's really rebuking the problem that these Jews have. That they're only willing to receive Jesus because of the signs that he does, because of his miraculous power, but they're not willing to believe in who he is. They're not willing to accept him as the Messiah, the Savior of the world. You know, there are a lot of people like this today. People who won't believe in Jesus unless they see some kind of sign or maybe unless they have some kind of emotional experience or feeling. You know, in the world today, we kind of have a I have to see it to believe it mindset. And I'll have to say, you know what, with the world, that's not a bad mindset to have because there's a lot of people in the world who seek to deceive us. So, you know, I have to see it to believe it. You know, when you're dealing with worldly people, not the, the, the worst kind of mindset to have. You know, early on in my life, I discovered that my brother was a deceiver. Uh, it took, uh, he got great pleasure, he's four years older, in, in trying to deceive me. Maybe some of you have some siblings who are the same type of way. Uh, And he was successful for a while. He convinced me that I was adopted. Uh, I believed that for a few years. 
Uh, and he told me, you can't tell mom and dad. They told us not to tell you. And if you tell them, they'll be so mad. So, you know, I just kept it a secret and believed it. He actually convinced me that when my dad was in Vietnam, he was like Rambo and killed hundreds of people. And most of them, we killed him with the Rambo knife. Uh, I believed that for a while. Uh, but as I started to get older, I became wise to his deception. And a day after we watched the movie Goonies, if you've ever seen that movie, it's about a bunch of kids. You know, they find this pirate treasure. Uh, and, you know, we're all oh, this is so great. We want to find treasure. We're poor. This would be awesome. Well, he tells me that he found this cave under our trailer that had treasure in it. Oh, you know, he's been deceiving me enough. I'm like, yeah, I got to see it to believe it. But inside of me, I was like, I really hope you're telling the truth because this would be awesome. But I do get a flashlight. I crawl under, searching for a cave to find treasure, to find that it didn't exist. Uh, But, you know, so to have the mindset, I have to see it to believe it, isn't a bad thing when you're dealing with deceivers like my brother. But the mindset doesn't work when it comes to faith in God. And this is where oftentimes as Christians we struggle because we're in a world that we're still you know, convinced is trying to take advantage of us and deceive us and there's truth to that. And then we kind of bring that mindset to our faith in God. It's like, I got to see it in order to believe it. But you know what? When it comes to faith in God, the opposite is actually true. Instead of I have to see it in order to believe it, God says, you know what? No, you have to believe it first and then you'll see it. Hebrews 11.1 and 2 Corinthians 5.7 share with us some information about faith. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Notice these verses reveal that the faith that the Bible speaks of is not based on what we see. And this was the Jews' problem. You know, we won't believe unless we see a sign, unless you do a miracle, unless we see some wonder from you, Jesus. That's the only way that we're going to believe anything. Their faith was only connected to what they saw. But you know what? The exact opposite was seen in the Samaritans. They completely believed in who Jesus was, that he's the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and it was based solely on the word of Jesus. No sign, no wonder. They didn't see any of that. They trusted the word of Jesus, and that was enough for them to put their faith in. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. God wants our faith in him to have its foundation in his word, not in miraculous signs, not in our feelings, not in our emotions. Now, I will say signs and wonders, they're a good thing. I mean, if they're from God, it's, it's wonderful, it's miraculous, but they cannot be the foundation of our faith in God. We should not depend on them to prove to us God exists or, or anything about him. In themselves, signs and wonders really can't change someone's heart. And you see this throughout Scripture. I think the nation of Israel is a great example of this. You know, as they're there at the base of Mount Sinai, I mean, they have signs and wonders that are just breathtaking. The mountain is quaking. God descends on it. There's fire. There's lightning. There's all these things transpiring. Actually, the voice of God is speaking, and they hear it. And you would think, man, they saw this sign. Surely their faith is going to last and be deep. And within just a little bit of time, In that same place, they're building a golden calf, claiming this is what took us. This is our God that took us out of Egypt. And you see that that sign was not something that brought deep, lasting faith. So as this nobleman comes and asks Jesus to do a sign and wonder and heal his son, Jesus first takes an opportunity as this situation arises to rebuke the crowd for the fact that they won't believe in who he is. For the fact that they won't trust in his word alone, that they only want signs and wonders. But you know what? The nobleman is going to continue to implore Jesus. He's going to implore him again because he's desperate for Jesus to do something for his son. So let's see how Jesus responds to this next thing that the nobleman says, verse 49 and 50. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. 
I think it's important to note that the nobleman understood that Jesus wasn't, you know, just rebuking him. The rebuke was not just directed at this one individual, that it was a rebuke to the Jews as a whole who were only willing to put their faith in signs and wonders, not in who Jesus actually was. He wasn't trying to discourage this man for asking for a miracle. Jesus never tried to discourage people for that. He was discouraging this man and everyone else who was listening from placing their faith in signs, for placing their faith in miracles, but not for asking Jesus to do a miracle on their behalf. And so this nobleman once again asked Jesus, Sir, come down before my child dies. He's already asked him once, and now he's pleading again, Hey, hey, I don't have much time. My son doesn't have much time. Please come with me and go to my home and heal my son. But notice the nobleman wants Jesus to accompany him to Capernaum. But Jesus purposely chooses not to go. And I want you to know the reason why. He could have gone with this nobleman. He could have traveled the 20 miles. He could have gone to his home. He could have laid hands on his son and healed him. But he purposely chooses not to join the nobleman, not to do what the nobleman thought was best. Jesus, I know how you should heal. I know how you should do it. You just need to join me, go to my house. Everything's going to be great. But the reason that Jesus ultimately chooses not to do it instead says, go your way, your son lives, is because Jesus wants to test the nobleman's faith. He wants to see if the nobleman will do what Jesus said and have faith in him without a sign. Because here's the thing. If Jesus goes with him, The nobleman's only going to believe when he sees Jesus actually lay hands on his son. His son, you know, is revived. He's no longer sick. And now all of a sudden, I've seen the sign and I believe. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. I want to put you to the test. Will you believe my word alone? I'm telling you, go your way, your son lives. Will you believe it? Will you trust my word without having seen it? You're not there. You don't know if I'm telling the truth. You don't know if it's actually happened. Will you trust me? Will you believe my word alone? This is the test for you because I've just rebuked everybody because they're not willing to trust my word alone. They're only focused on signs. And when they see the sign, that's the only time they'll believe. But they won't trust my word only. And so he's putting this nobleman in this place where he's saying, you know what? I'm going to allow you to put what I just said into practice. This rebuke, this challenge, I'm going to allow you to do what I want them to do. I want you to put your trust in my word alone. Will you do that? Can you do that? Jesus is trying to help this nobleman have the right kind of faith. He just rebuked the crowd for the wrong kind of faith. That faith that's only what I see, only in the miracles. No, no, I want you to have the right kind of faith. The faith that's willing to trust my word alone. Without the signs, without the wonders. And notice how the nobleman responds to this test. I'm sure that was difficult. I'm sure that that was a hard thing. You're not going to come? Okay, I just got to trust that my, my son's okay. Just go my way and believe the word that you say that my son lives. We're told the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went his way. So notice that this nobleman, he goes from crisis faith to confident faith in Jesus' words alone. You know, I think this is such an important stage of faith for each one of us to be in, especially when we encounter a crisis. So often when we're in the midst of a crisis or someone we love is in the midst of a crisis, we want to see the miracle, but before we will have faith in God. We want to see how things are going to work out. We don't want to just believe in God's word. You know, for us, oftentimes, that's not enough. You know, we, we want to have some kind of feeling. We want to have some kind of emotion. There's all these things that we want to have connected before we really trust and believe and have faith that what God's word says is true. You know, I think we struggle with this so often, and, and a lot of it is, is that feeling. You know, oftentimes, you know, we don't feel what the Bible clearly says, that God will never leave us or forsake us. In the midst of crisis, sometimes we feel forsaken. Sometimes we feel like I'm in this all alone. I'm dealing with this all by myself. I got nobody here with me. God, you've abandoned me. That's how I feel right now. But am I willing to say, you know what? It's not true. I'm going to put my faith in the word of God that actually is going against the way that I feel right now. I'm going to put my faith in the word of God without some kind of sign, without some kind of thing that, that I can see and hold on to and just say, you know what? God's word is enough. 
that what he says is true, and I'm going to base what I do on that. You see, that's the kind of faith that Jesus wants, confident faith in his word, even when we don't see the sign or the miracle or we don't feel like what his word says is happening right now. Well, now this nobleman's confident faith is not just seen in the statement that John says. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. Notice that it's also seen in the actions of this nobleman. Notice what he does in verses 51 and 52. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, Yesterday. At the seventh hour, the fever left him. Now, there's something very important here at the end of verse uh, 52 that that can often be overlooked and missed. The nobleman, he's traveling back home from Cana to Capernaum, which we noted is about a five-hour walk. And, And as he's on this journey, he meets his servants. His servants are there, and they meet him, and they give him the wonderful news. Your son lives. And then he inquires. Hey, hey, what hour did this happen? What hour did my son get better? And notice what they say. Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Now, there's two important things that I want to note here. The first thing is is the more obvious, and the second thing is maybe the one that we often miss. The first is that the nobleman's son was healed the moment that Jesus said, Go your way, your son lives. And this guy registers that. He recognizes. He does the math. He says, wait a second. That's that's the exact hour in which Jesus told me my son lives. And he realizes, you know what? Jesus' power is so much greater than I initially thought. I thought he had to be with me. I thought he had to lay hands on my son. But all he had to do was just speak. 20 miles away, a sick boy in a bed. And Jesus' words were enough to bring healing to his life. But the second thing I want you to note that the nobleman's son was healed yesterday at the seventh hour, it gives us some significant information that you can kind of just read and and easily miss. The seventh hour is 1 p.m. So it's 1 o'clock in the afternoon when Jesus heals the nobleman's son, and then he tells him to go his way. But notice when he meets these servants, it's yesterday that they say at 1, your son was healed. Now think about this. Capernaum is only a five-hour walk from Cana. This nobleman could have easily gotten home before dark, easily gotten home before dinner if he wanted to. One o'clock, Jesus says, go your way. Five-hour, he can make it even less if he's rushing. But yet, he doesn't see the servants until the next day. So what's he doing? He spends the night in Cana. He doesn't go straight home to his son. Well, what does that reveal? It reveals that he actually believed what Jesus said. There's no way this guy stays in Cana if he doesn't think his son's healed. He's rushing back home. If he thinks his son's going to die, he wants to be there in the last moments. If he thinks he needs to get another doctor, he's going to get back to his son. The only way that he spends the night in Cana and doesn't go back home is because he actually believed what Jesus said. And he's like, you know what, I can stay here. I can spend the night, and I can just leisurely get there tomorrow because I trust that what Jesus said actually happened. He puts that confident faith into action. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. The nobleman was sure that that his child was alive and well, that he was in no violent hurry to return, He did not go home immediately as though he must be in time to get another doctor. If Christ had not succeeded, but he went his way leisurely and calmly, confident in the truth of what Jesus had said to him. God wants us to be like this nobleman. To have the confident faith in his word that's also connected with our actions. That we don't just say it, but we show it. I mean, if this guy rushed home to his son, you know, running there, is he okay? It would show, well, I didn't really believe what Jesus said. The fact that he waits, the fact that he spends the night, just shows his actions backed up his belief. So the servant tells the nobleman the exact hour his son was healed. And notice how the nobleman responds in verse 53. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives, and he 
himself believed and his whole household. Here in this verse, we have the final three stages of faith that this nobleman goes through. He started with crisis faith, which moved to confident faith. And when the servants tell him the hour that his son was healed, we're told he knew it was the same hour that Jesus said to him, your son lives. And that news gave him a confirmed faith. Confidence that what Jesus had said is now confirmed with the news of what Jesus said actually happened. You know, I think this is something that God often does for our faith. We take a step of faith. We're confident in Jesus' words alone. We don't have the signs. We don't have the feelings. We don't have other things. And we just take that step. Jesus, you said it. I believe it. I'm going to move forward with it. And then God sends something or someone our way to confirm that what Jesus said, what his word said, is actually true. You know, this is something that I love about apologetics. I love discovering evidence that confirms our faith in the words of Jesus, in the words of the Bible. You know, there have been times in my life where I've been challenged by people that kind of come against Christianity and maybe they'll attack, you know, the story of creation and try to use evolution or, or that, that we can't trust the Bible and it's full of contradictions or whatever, you know, they're kind of throw my way. And I know early on in my Christian life, I hadn't studied those things. I didn't have answers for those things. And so the only thing I could really say is, you know what, Jesus says it, his word says it, and that's just what I believe. I, I didn't have anything more. I didn't have any evidence. I didn't have anything to share. But it was like, you know what? God's word says it, that's enough. But you know what? It was great that when I started studying apologetics and I start realizing all the evidence there is for the creation account, all the evidence there is for the trustworthiness of the Bible, all the evidence there is for these different attacks that people brought against Christianity, against my faith, and all that did for me was just confirm that the confidence I had in the Word of God and the words of Jesus Christ were good, were right. It just confirmed it, that it was right, that it was true, and it's just something that kind of just deepens your faith. Because sometimes you're like, oh, I, 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 I want to hold on to this. You know, all these people are telling me I'm wrong, and then all of a sudden God helps you confirm it so you can just be stronger, deeper in those things, in those convictions, and it's a great place to be. So when the nobleman hears the hour his son was healed, his faith was confirmed, but then he goes to the most important faith of all. And that is conversion faith. We're told, and he himself believed. You see, the nobleman initially came to Jesus because he was in this crisis. He knew Jesus was the healer, and I'm coming to him for what he can do for my son. But he didn't come to him because he believed in who Jesus was. He just, hey, you're the guy who can do the signs. But now he's moved from that. That, that crisis faith has, has brought him to a place where he's now experienced Jesus, the power that he has to just speak, and his son is healed, and it's led him to this saving faith in who Jesus is. You know, that's the kind of faith that God wants everyone to have. You know, James says, you know, even the demons believe in God and shudder. I mean, just to say, I believe that God exists, that, that's nothing impressive. You should. You know, all creation declares that, but there's something far deeper. That doesn't save you. Just believing that there's a God is not a saving faith. You've got to understand who Jesus is, what he did for us, and that's where God wants every one of us to get to. Because he desires that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And that only happens when we place our faith in who Jesus is and what he's done. Well, there's one final stage in this nobleman's faith, and that is contagious faith. We're told that he himself believed, and then notice, and his whole household. The nobleman's conversion faith was something that was also a contagious faith. What he chose to do in placing his trust in Jesus Christ and believing who he is now has had this contagious effect on his family who also now places that trust in Jesus. You know, God doesn't want our faith to stop at conversion. Once we discover who Jesus is, once we discover what he's done for us, he wants our faith to be contagious. He wants it to be something that you know, influences and that when people who don't know Jesus Christ look at your life, man, that they, they want that. They want what you have. They see the difference. They see what the peace. They see what God has done to save you. And they recognize the transformation in your life. That faith that you have hopefully becomes contagious, especially to family, especially to people who see you so often. 
But you know what? It's not just for those who are unbelievers so that they can become believers. You know what? Your faith in God can also be contagious for believers. Not for them to get saved. They're already saved. But you know what? When you go through a crisis and you have a confidence in the Word of God that really is kind of going against maybe how you feel. You don't see how this is going to work out. You know, all these things are coming against you, but you just trust God. You trust His Word. You're just willing to put your faith in that. And other people are just kind of dumbfounded other believers even look and think man if i was in your situation right now i'd be freaking out if i was in your situation i'd be stressed and i'd be trying on my own power i'd be trying this and that how is it that you have peace how is it that you're able to just trust god in this how is it that you're able to continue through that that's contagious people see that and like man i want to be like that i'm a believer as well but i'm just impressed with seeing you go through this and it helps others to be able to go through that in the same godly way Our faith isn't just something that blesses us, which it definitely does. It's something that the Bible says blesses God. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. It pleases Him. Our faith is something that blesses Him. But you know what? It's also a huge blessing on other people as well. Well, this chapter ends in verse 54, which says this. This again is the second sign Jesus did when He had come out of Judea into Galilee. Now, remember when we started this gospel, I said that John, through this gospel, is going to use seven signs for an ultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose is to help prove that Jesus is God. The first sign was turning water into wine, and here now we have the second sign that John records for us. Notice the first sign persuades the disciples to believe in Jesus, and the second sign persuades a nobleman and his whole household to believe in Jesus. Why? Because John's saying, hey, these signs should point you to who Jesus is and hopefully make you get to a place where you put your trust in that. But you know what? The one that we seem to miss, and I think the most significant one of all, the most significant group, is not the disciples right now, and it's not the noblemen. It's the Samaritans. Because they're the ones, the only ones of all this, who were willing to trust Jesus' word alone. They didn't need a sign. They didn't need water into wine. They didn't need a miraculous healing. All they needed was Jesus' words, and they were willing to believe in who he was, that he's the Messiah and the Savior of the world. And they're a wonderful example to us because that is what God wants for us. He wants us in that place where we say, you know what? My faith is solely based on your word. Yes, yeah, signs are nice, they, great, they, they confirm, and feelings, you know, they can be helpful, but ultimately, my foundation is on the Word and the Word alone, and if I don't have any of that other stuff, that's okay. I don't need it. I only need the Word. And hopefully that's where we can be. Is Jesus' Word enough for you? Are you willing to put your faith in His words, even when you, you don't have some miracle, even when you don't have some feeling, even though when you can't figure it all out, to say, you know what, God, I trust you enough and what you say, and that you're truthful, that I can hold to this and believe in it. Because that's where he wants us to be. And hopefully, as we look at this stage that this nobleman goes through, that we ourselves can recognize God wants to deepen us in our faith. He wants to encourage us to grow in that. And especially in the midst of crisis and hardship, we wouldn't freak out. We would just get confident in the word of God and hold on to it. Well, today is Margaret's last Sunday with us. Uh, she's going to be moving back to Colorado with her family. And uh, I know on behalf of our church, I think I could say for everyone, we love you. It's been great to have you a part of our fellowship. Uh, we're definitely going to miss you. Uh, and I just wanted to take some time to pray for you uh, and just to lift you up with this move and this transition. And just, uh, you know, we are so grateful that God has given you and us this time together. Uh, and it's just been a blessing. And so let's just take a moment to do that. If you'd like to, to pray, uh, I would encourage you just to do that. And, and I'm going to close us in prayer.
feel like our connection is just reaching out to them. We know that you, through your wisdom and through your just understanding of all things, will move us to the places where you want, where you have us. So we just recognize that she's committed to you, Lord. We pray that you would just use her mightily in Colorado and just use her mightily with her family, Father, to encourage
Father, we are just so grateful um, that you have brought Margaret into our fellowship for this time, and uh, just what a blessing it's been uh, just to have her, Lord, what a blessing she has been uh, to us as a church as a whole, and also just to so many individuals in our church, and uh, God, we're just thankful, Uh, we wish it was a longer time, but we're just grateful for the time that you gave us, Lord, and we just pray that as she's now being sent... Uh, to a new place, Lord, as you're leading her uh, back to where her family is in Colorado, Lord. We just pray for all the practical um, things that come with a move, Lord, that you would just take care of that and help her with all the packing and all that she needs to get done before her departure, Lord, and just keep her safe uh, as she just makes that journey, God. And we just pray that you would uh, just bring lots of fruit to this uh, new um, destination, Lord, with her family being there, Lord. We pray for great opportunities just to be a blessing and a minister uh, person to them, Lord. We pray that she would get plugged in uh, to a church that would just be uh, not only a blessing to her, Lord, but just as she's been a blessing to us, that she would be able to bless that church and use her gifts there, God, and serve there. And um, we just uh, are so grateful uh, just that in this life, Lord, you uh, bring people that uh, just encourage us and they're blessing to us, Lord. And uh, and just Murner said, Lord, if, if if we don't see her again in this life, Lord, we know that we have all eternity together, um, and we're just thankful that this is just uh, a short goodbye, um, if nothing else, Lord. But uh, we we do just ask, God, that you would just continue that work that you started in her, Lord, continue to use her, continue to do great things in and through her life, Lord, and uh, we just trust that uh, you're going to be doing wonderful things in the uh, new place that you have her. Uh, and so we just pray that you would go before her, that you would prepare